also, I didn't actually grow up in LA. I was just picking a US city that I knew had a terrible smog problem at one point and doesn't anymore because we, the Environmental Protection Agency and all the, the laws that we've passed in the last 30 years. But if you were to go have to have visited there in the 70s, you would have seen it. And right? it was mm-hmm. awful. That was on my mind as well was uh, because I travel all around the world. I've been to many cities in China. And when I was in uh, Guangzhou, I had to wear a mask, a surgical mask, just to walk on the street. And everybody else did too, because it was that bad. And your eyes, like you said, your eyes would water and burn and your nose would, it would smell awful. And and the inside of your nose would burn and Mm. you, you couldn't wait to get back inside because it was just unhealthy to be outside. LA might not have ever been quite that bad, but it was a lot closer to that. I can't imagine every major city in our country being like that someday, but left to our own devices, we could end up that way. And small changes like you and I are talking about now can keep that from happening. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. You probably know the value of stories. You could probably tell stories better. Even if you're improving, I bet you're focusing on parts that aren't as important for your improvement. Paul Smith, the guest today, teaches storytelling. But as I found out, storytelling to lead people is different than just engaging them or entertaining them. And how you develop yourself as a storyteller for leading others is different than just engaging. Not that there's a great value in the art of storytelling, but if you want to lead, you'll learn from Paul how and where to focus in different ways than I would have expected. I say this as someone who has worked on parts of of improving myself as a storyteller that they aren't worthless, but they aren't as valuable as what he talks about. We'll also get to talk about something that's hit me that the stories around environmental action behavior about environment, there are no great stories. There are no stories. You'll hear the stories that are important for leaders to know. This is something we talk about, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. So listen, and you'll hear about stories, how to improve yourself, the great lack of stories around environmental action. Here's Paul. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Paul Smith. How are you doing? Hey, very good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for having me on yours too. You have a podcast called Lead with a Story. Right. And there's so many places I could start. I want to start with you come, your background is economics. You have an MBA from Wharton. And most people are probably like, well, that doesn't sound like where the traditional storytelling comes from. Yeah. And Fair enough. Yeah. I bet everyone asks you your story. I'm going to hold on to that for a second. Sure. I think that regular schools should teach more storytelling and should like, they teach you to analyze and to give results, but not to, shouldn't this be something that's, shouldn't regular schools put you out of a job? I mean, shouldn't this be something that people learn? Yeah, yeah that, that is a, a fair comment. And one that I've made myself many times. Yeah, regular schools probably should put me out of a job. In fact, that's one of the reasons, that's the reason I got into this is because I was frustrated that, yeah, I, I went through a whole MBA program, a whole undergraduate degree program, and nobody ever taught me about storytelling. 
And that frustrated me because I, it clearly it's important. And it, they taught you leadership, right? You took classes right. in leadership. And storytelling is like this critical element that professors don't know. Right. Now, there, there are a handful of them that are now. And, and the only reason I know this is because there, some of them are using my books as their text. And so they, they write and ask me for permission to use that. So I know some are, but it's still just a tiny fraction of them that, that do that. But it is beginning to seep its way into mainstream academia. And yeah, so at some point, I'm, I'm sure I will be out, out of a job. When did you start realizing it? Uh, do you remember what led you to be like, wait a minute, this is something, or what was the feeling and how did it come from? Where did it come from? Yeah, well, so there are a, a number of things, but I think slowly it dawned on me somewhere in the middle of my 20 some odd year career that that the leaders that I admired the most, the ones that I wanted to, that, that I wanted to work for, that I wanted to be like when I grew up in the company and I, I was, I spent most of my time at Procter & Gamble, had this skill of being able to tell just really compelling, engaging stories that made me want to go do what they wanted me to go do. And, and, and like I said, that frustrated me because I spent a lot of money learning how to <laughs> succeed in the business world and nobody taught me that skill. And, and uh, so I, I kind of set out on my own learning journey to learn it once that kind of dawned on me. And, and there, there were a few other specific moments. I remember reading a, a book by uh, Chip and Dan Heath uh, called Made to Stick. And they, they, they cover six different attributes that that ideas that really survive and thrive in the world have. And one of those attributes was that they're communicated via a story. And so there were a, f- a few little you know, points along the way that pointed me in that direction, but uh, it was mostly that slow realization that you know, th- that leader is telling a really good story and, and I don't know how to do that. When you said the great leaders, you, I think you were talking about bosses and people that you've worked for. As soon as you said it, I thought of Abraham Lincoln. I, I don't know if he's, I think he was recognized as a storyteller. And there's a scene in the movie where he sits down with some, uh, the, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis playing him. Mm-hmm. And he just, he's telling the story and he just totally captures everyone. Now this is dramatized, but I imagine he was probably like that. Yeah. He, he's famously known for being a good storyteller. I, you know, as you can imagine, as part of doing the research for the books I write on storytelling, I have to read a lot of other books on storytelling as part of doing my due diligence, right? Well, uh, Lincoln on Leadership is one of those, the title of one of those books that I read to, to help learn the art and the science of storytelling. So he, he's well-documented as a, an accomplished storyteller and, and used that very intentionally as part of his communication style. As you started doing, telling more stories, could you feel the difference? I imagine you started telling crappy stories at the beginning and then it got better. Yeah, 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 fair enough. I mean, it, and it's like anything else. Well, storytelling is an art form, right? So it's kind of like music or dance or, you know, or, or painting or something. When you first start doing it, you're probably not very good, but you, you, you get better and better and better, not only as you practice, but as you study the art. So for example, if I wanted to learn how to play the guitar, by the way, I'm not a naturally gifted musician at all, mm-hmm. but if I wanted to learn to play the guitar, I probably could right? But I'd, I'd do it by going, taking guitar lessons from somebody who knew how to play the guitar, right? I wouldn't just buy a guitar and put it by my bed and hope that by osmosis, I would get better at playing the guitar, right? So you need to study it as an art form from someone who knows, read a book, watch a YouTube video, take a class, you know, that's why I do what I do, learn the techniques and then practice the techniques and you get, you get better and better. And I'm sure I went through the same kind of journey myself. And do you remember any times you told stories where you didn't I got to share something that for me makes storytelling hard. Is it not hard? I feel like I want to tell people the lesson from the story. Mm-hmm. But if I tell the story and don't tell the lesson, 
it's actually more effective. Yes. But it's hard to let go of like, here's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a very astute observation. You're correct. So here's what I teach people to do. I teach them that there are eight questions that your story, your leadership story needs to answer. And the, the seventh one is what is the lesson? But you shouldn't answer that question. The audience, so you should answer questions one through six. The audience should answer questions seven and eight, which is what sh- did I learn from that story? And what should I go do now differently than I was going to do before? Now that I've heard that story, what's going to be my behavior change? You want the audience to answer those two questions for themselves. And the reason is because as, as you're imagining, people are far more passionate about pursuing their ideas than they are about pursuing your ideas. So the story helps them come to the same conclusion that you did when that thing happened to you, whatever you're telling the story about. So you want to tell them a story and then pause and let them tell you what they concluded from it, what lesson they drew from it and what they're going to go do now. And if, if it's the same thing you wanted them to go do, you're done. <laughs> That's the perfect ending. Now, if they come to a different conclusion or a different recommended action, you can always redirect them by you know, saying, well, you know, that, that's, that's one way you could respond to the story. And I thought about that too, but I came to a different conclusion and here's why. So you can always redirect, but you want them to come to that conclusion themselves, which is one of the whole reasons for telling a story in the first place, as opposed to just wagging your finger at somebody and telling them what to do. You're making me think of a story that I, I would often tell about how I grew up having like the opposite of leadership. I was a uh, captain of the ultimate Frisbee team in college. And so when the games would end at the end of the day, We'd all be like sweaty and covered with mud and, you know, the cleats are really, we're sore all over. And because we were at Columbia, we were always traveling to away places and we'd have to stay in some dorm or some some hotel or something. All right. So we're all sitting there and we're all tired and muddy and stuff. And everyone's always sitting there next to the vans. And I would always say, guys, let's get in the van. We can shower and eat and sleep earlier if we change in the van instead of sitting here doing nothing. And no one would ever get in the van. One day, my friend KJ, I'm like, why don't you guys get in? And he goes, he looks at me, he goes, Josh, I hear what you're saying. It makes sense. And something about the way you're saying it makes me not want to do it. This is like the opposite of leadership. I guess I could have told the story of like, well, certainly I was not having the effect of like, logically, what I said was perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, we like clean. We like eating when we're hungry. We like to sleep when we're tired. Maybe they don't want to be naked in front of everybody in a van. I I, I don't know what the the Well, I wasn't changing that level. (laughs) It was the cleats and just shirts. Okay. So storytelling, by the way, is not always the right answer. So it may be in in that situation that the best way to convince them is just something like you did, but maybe for whatever reason, it didn't land very well with them. In fact, I I tell people stories are is only the right solution about 10 to 15% of the time or or said better, about 10 to 15% of the words that come out of your mouth during a normal business day ought to be in the form of a story. The rest of it ought to be just the normal way you converse with people and give direction and answer questions and things like that. So it's not always that a story is the best solution to the problem that you're having. In fact, can you imagine if all you did all day long was just tell stories and do nothing else? I mean, it would minimize the value of the stories that you do tell if that's all you ever did. So don't beat yourself up too much for that, that, that van moment. It, it might not have been that a story would have been the better solution. Well, in any case, telling people the answer what wasn't. Now I have to jump to your page because, oh yeah. So there, yeah, 10 leader, 10 stories, great leaders tell your most recent book. Is it, it's your most recent one, right? Yes, that's right. And you start off by pointing out good leaders ask, how do I tell better stories? Great leaders ask, what stories do I need to tell? 
And I thought before, I, I don't profess to be a great storyteller, but I'm definitely learning stories are much more effective in certain places than, than yep. other things. And I have found that there's certain stories that I tell over and over again, several of which were here. So you have 10 of the top stories. And at first I thought I should look for these stories and then and create them. But now I realize it's like they emerge from, I don't know how to put it. It's not that I try to start from scratch and like sit there with a blank piece of paper and write a story to, to fill a particular need. Mm-hmm. It's realized that certain things will emerge as critical to that area. And storytelling makes me draw that out into effective storytelling means take something that already exists and make it a great story as opposed to creating from scratch. Well, if what you mean by that is like when you just describe sitting at a blank piece of paper, uh, that's what I think fiction writers do, right? They sit down with a blank sheet of paper or a, a, a blank screen on their computer and they imagine something happened and they write it down, right? They're, they're writing fiction. They're making it up. Leadership stories are typically not fictional. They're about things that really happen. So you're not sitting down and just inventing a story. You might, though, sit down and, and intentionally think of some things that happened to fill a leadership need that you have. For example, if your company is facing this big change that you're about to go through and you need all 500 employees at your company to embrace, understand why you're changing, embrace that change, understand the direction that you want them to go and, and understand how they're going to get there, you need a few stories to go along with that. And so you might sit down and think of, okay, what happened that made me realize six months ago that we needed to embark on this change? Oh, that would have been when our, our biggest competitor totally kicked our butt in whatever market or this thing happened or that thing happened or I read this, I read a book or I, I met a guy on the train and something happened that made you realize we need to change the direction of the company. Whatever happened, tell your employees about that moment in time. And it, it could be just, it'll just be a two or three minute story of, hey, I bumped into this guy on the plane or I picked up our market share reports and realized we'd been losing for six weeks or whatever happened. Tell the story of that thing that happened, and that will explain to your audience why you need to change. Then you'll have a different story for setting a vision for the future and a a different story for for the the strategy for how to get there. But So you are going to sit down probably with a a sheet of paper or a blank screen at some point, but you're not starting from scratch. You're, You're searching through your brain for things that really happened to build a story around that, as opposed to, I'm going to make up a, a character and invent, you know, some kind of magical story, right? That's not the way it works. This is such a different perspective than in, as you say, I'm like, of course, that's the obvious thing to do. And, and it, you've laid it out. Obviously you've interviewed, you interviewed a lot of people for this. You, I mean, you've been teaching a lot and I want to cover like what those stories are, but I also, I have to say that when I, okay, so you have courses, so I was looking at storytelling for leaders and I thought, okay, I've seen like a lot of storytelling courses. And then I have to say these points. I'm sorry if it, if it sounds like bad form for me just to read off of your webpage. No, go ahead. But you're like, of course, that's what I wrote it for. Yeah, he's uh, at, somebody's got to read it. <laughs> so there's storytelling for leaders, there's storytelling for selling. And it says what a leadership story is. And that's, that to me made me think that's different than just a regular story. Why you should tell leadership stories. When to tell leadership stories. How to craft and deliver them for maximum impact. This is like, it wasn't just like character, conflict, struggle, goal. It's not just storytelling. The storytelling, this is directed and purposeful. 
Right. Yeah. So those things you just mentioned are basically the structure of a story. And, and that is in there. And one of those lines, if you read down far enough on that webpage, there'll be a line on story structure. I tend to not use that kind of academic language when I'm talking to business executives like, okay, we need to craft the context, the challenge, the structure, the narrative arc. If I was teaching a creative writing class or something, I would use language like that. But what I did to make it more user-friendly for my non-journalist, creative writing, novelist <laughs> clients is here are the eight questions your story needs to answer. And if you, if you read through those eight questions, you'll realize, oh yeah, that's the context, the challenge, the conflict, the resolution. Oh, I, I can see the narrative arc, but I, I don't want to use that language because it just sounds too fluffy and, and, and unfamiliar to people. So I made it a little bit more concrete with here are the questions your story needs to answer so they can follow it in a little bit more formulaic way. But the craft of story is largely the same, whether you're telling a story for leadership purposes or marketing or sales purposes, or you're writing a novel or you're uh, writing your first screenplay. Those nuts and bolts aren't terribly different. I've changed some of the language to make it easier to digest. The big difference is what stories you're going to tell. And that's why, as you read, the first line in my new book is good leaders do want to know how to tell a story, but great leaders want to know what stories do I need to tell? Because when you're telling stories in business, nobody expects you to be like Steven Spielberg, right? They're not expecting this miraculously produced artistic thing of beauty. You know, you're not a professional speechmaker or, or a professional novelist, right? But so what's most important is choosing the right story to tell at the right moment and knowing what kind of stories do I even need to tell as a leader. So that was the whole purpose of this most recent book is these are the 10 most important stories that every leader needs to be able to tell at a moment's notice. And if you tell it lousy, it's far better than not telling it at all. So when I teach leadership storytelling, I'd spend the first part of the day on what a leadership story is, which ones do you need to tell? And we do some brainstorming exercises to figure out, well, which three are the most important to you? We'll get to the how later in the day, but, but knowing what, to, what stories to tell is the most important start. Wow, this is, I felt like I, I looked into storytelling a lot before, but this is such a different perspective. It, maybe to you it's common. Or it, it, How do people react when, when they take your course, when you work with them in person, when you give keynotes on storytelling? Yeah, they're relieved is the, the first reaction I get because I think a lot of times they expect, oh, uh, you're going to bring in a video camera and, and, and videotape me stuttering and stammering my way and somebody's going to be counting how many times I say um and er and uh, if I don't make good eye contact, you're going to embarrass me in front. You know, They think it's some kind of pro speech performance class sometime and that's not at all what, I mean, there are people that do that and I'm sure that's important, but that's not what I do. I'm teaching you the art and the science of crafting the right story for a leader to tell at the right moment. And, and the performance aspects of it, I almost never cover unless I have a really, really interested class and I've got like some extra time, like, you know, body posture and what do I do with my hands and all that stuff. I just think that is the least important part of storytelling. Again, unless you're a professional actor, then you, you need to be good at that stuff. But I would summarize it this way, telling the right story, but butchering all those performance aspects of it. If you do that, your audience will forgive you for making those little mistakes. But if you tell a story in a, in a way that would make a Shakespearean actor proud, but you tell the wrong story or a boring and irrelevant story, your audience will never forgive you for wasting their time. Yeah. Right? The story is more important than the delivery in business. It's not probably in Hollywood, but it is in business. 
man, I'm so torn right now because I want to like pause and, and digest what you've just said. I have to go listen to this after we finish okay. recording. <laughs> yeah. But, and, you, but relief is the, the thing you should be feeling. Okay, good. I'm off the hook. I, I can be a good storyteller without having those fabulous performance characteristics in business. And you can. Well, for me, it's also a different direction to look instead of looking for, I guess it would be, that's what like get someone who's good at it to, to work with those things. If you want to work on those things, but it's also look at experiences and, I think also you said those of those eight questions. My goal is to get them to ask those questions at the end. Like, like it gives me a direction, not just to like tell a story so that they're going to be like, "Hey, Josh, that was a great story." But there's it's a specific goal. It gives me direction. Yeah, in fact, that that's a good observation. Um, it your goal is not to have an audience at the end says, "Wow, Josh, that was a great story." In fact, you you kind of don't want that. You you don't want people to notice that you're telling a story. If people are so impressed with your storytelling capability, it almost detracts from the impact of the story. You, you want them to be impressed with the idea that you're communicating in the story, right? So uh, that's one reason why you don't want to be jumping around on stage and you know trying to impress them with your stagecraft, right? Because that distracts from the message. You, you when you tell a story in business. The cadence of your voice should not change from, from what you and I are doing right now. It should just be part of the conversation. It, you know, they shouldn't notice that, oh, you've started telling a story now. Mm-hmm. That, that should never come up, right? You want it just to, you want them to focus on the ideas in the story, not, oh, wow, that was a really, you know, big story or something. So yeah, that, that's not the right thing to focus on. All right. Now I'm going to get a bit selfish because you're talking about stories for a particular uh, purpose, mainly business. Mm-hmm. As I've been doing this podcast and th- trying to influence people in the area of the, env- of the environment, at first it was like giving people facts and figures and doom and gloom. And, and I would also say, look, I did this. You should try it. And if you try it, you'll like it. And over the years, more and more stories have emerged as being – that's like hit me. Like it's much more effective when I tell stories. And so I, I've built up like a – what do you call it? A repertoire of, of a cadre – I don't know, whatever. It's a a bunch of stories. Uh, yeah, that's the word I use. Okay, cool. Uh, so I have a repertory of stories that I use for different purposes. And so and when I was looking at, at, okay, so now I'm going to read from your page again. All right. I'm going to look at the oh, 10 stories great leaders tell. And everyone should go, I'll put the link to your page. So everyone should go to see, but there's like where we came from, the founding story, why we can't stay here, a case for change story, where we're going, a vision story. And as I go down the list, I'm like, these are obvious, like, of course, what people should have these stories. And that no doubt came out of, of um, interviews and talking to effective leaders and also probably reflection on your part. For none of them, does the environment have a, a good, there are none of these stories exist for the environment as far as I could tell. And maybe I'm missing something. To me, like the founding story is like some scientists figured out that there's a global warming effect and it was a long time ago. And, uh, and what, like where we're going, there is no vision of, it's like, if we don't change, we're all going to die. Something like that. Not a particularly compelling story. Yeah. So I think you could apply, I haven't thought about this before, but uh, before this moment, but I think you could apply most of these to the environment. So the- um, It could, right? Not, it, it doesn't happen yet. Well, it's, it, it these are the yet. types of stories that you would apply to whatever business you as a leader are running. So for, if the business or the interest or the cause that you're involved in is the environment, well, the vision story is a vision of what you want the environment and people's relationship to the environment to look like 10, 15, 20 years in the future. The number four, the strategy story is about how we're going to change 
to get from the, where we are now, a bad place to where we want to be in the future. So yeah, I think you could apply all these to uh, environmental causes, but you, you need to think about it for a while, yeah. like, like any good story. This is culturally speaking, your book points to a huge dearth of where I think intellectually, a lot of people want change to happen. And I think emotionally, no one actually really wants to change. And there is no vision for the future, except we hope we don't that we hope that doesn't happen. There is no these. I mean, I could I could be missing something, but I'm like in the middle of all this stuff. And it's like I'm, I'm just looking down the list of who, what we do for our customers, what we're, how we differentiate from our competitors. I don't know if that really fits that one, but like what we believe. Uh, yeah, that definitely is one. I think you could apply to the environmental cause. Yeah, I think like a lot of what I have to do is, and I hope not just me, but like the world does, is is create stories around these things other than Florida's going to be underwater and there's going to be a billion climate refugees that people are like, I want to listen to that guy. Over there. I don't want to, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear the story of this other person over here, which is like anything other than that. Yeah, I get it. The, the, you know, the environmental catastrophe is probably not a fun story to tell and people don't want to hear that, but that may be the most important story for them to hear. And instead of it just being, well, Florida is going to be uh, six feet underwater. Okay. Well, so what? Well, tell me the story of somebody who lives in Florida and is displaced because of that. That would be a more compelling story than just the fact that sea level is going to rise by six feet or 60 feet or six inches, whatever it's going to be. Tell me the story of somebody in the future Right, so, the, so all the future stories are always fictional because the future hasn't happened yet. All, most of the other stories are, are, are factual. But when you're telling a future story, you, you do get to be that fiction writer. So tell me the, the story of that person whose home was destroyed or was moved off of their land and couldn't find some place else to live or was suffered or whose family died because of the, the terrible hurricanes or whatever. I think you need to tell those stories so people realize the, the consequences are real. Right? They're slow in getting here, but once they're here, they're, they will be very real and people need to, to hear a story for it to become tangible to them. I think also this, the stories that I'm finding, at, mainly because they're emerging from this podcast and perhaps your experience will become one of the stories, is that I'm finding stories that are useful are stories of people who are just like you and me. They don't really know what to do. They don't really, it's not like necessarily the most important thing for them. You know, they got to pay their bills and stuff like that. And I give them, I walk them through a process of, of coming up with a way for them to act on, on the environment in some way that they hadn't before. And I walk them through a specific way, which I'll do with you in a second, where they act on something they care about. And then the result, because they're acting on something they care about is they like it and they want to do more. And so that's a story that I'm, I've got now, I don't know, hundreds of these stories of people going from whatever, I don't really care. I know this is an issue, but not for me. I'll get to it later. You know, what I do doesn't matter. To, oh man, I wish I'd done this earlier. This is really, I'm glad I did this. It sounds like the making of a book. Can I share with you the story that I think will be the lead story of my next book? Yeah, yeah. I haven't started talking to agents and stuff like that. But uh, so there's a guy, Mark Reed, who is, he's a colonel at West Point. He's the head of a department. And I have him on the podcast and I walk him through this process. I, I'm going to walk you through the process too. And the process is to ask what, what the environment means to you. And, and he shares, he, like everyone shares these things and then to act on, oh, and by the way, every time when I ask people, they always answer something very generic, something impersonal. Like I say, what does the environment mean to you? And they're like, oh, it's the air we breathe. It's trees and forests. And, and they don't really, that's not what it means to them. So I have to go back and forth a few times until something comes out. 
And then I say, would you care to act on that? Or I, I invite you at your option to come up with something to act on that. And again, an impersonal answer. Oh, I'll go without straws for a month. Well, it had nothing to do with it. You start. It'll be something like the time they swam with the dolphins. And then they say something unrelated. And it's probably something they just read in the New York Times. And then I go back and forth until they get something that's more personal for them. And so he came up with, uh, he was going to go for one month. He and his household, he had to get the permission he did from his wife and kids to produce half as much garbage as, as they normally would. And he's a He's got a science background. So he's like, Josh, I haven't measured exactly, but you know, roughly it used to be like once a week, we'd produce a load of garbage. We'll try to go once every other week. So then he goes off and does it. I talked to him a month later or a little over a month later. The month was December. December means Christmas. Christmas means gifts. So apparently he had sat down with them and figured out like, what are we going to do? And so as a family, they got together and they thought, all right, at least let's cut out the wrapping paper. We don't need wrapping paper. Hmm. And then that continued. And then they decided no gifts, no material gifts. And they decided as a family to do roughly a staycation. So I think they went to Montreal or Quebec. So not too far from West Point. And as a family, they spent uh, something like a week together, undistracted by everything else. And he said, by unanimous agreement, it was the best Christmas they'd ever had. Not because of, not despite having no gifts, but because of having no gifts. Interesting. Because the, the material stuff, I mean, we all know, I'm sure you've gotten a sweater and been like, great. That's just what I was looking for. And you're like, oh, what am I going to do with this? And they didn't have any of that. And, I, you know, the material gift can never replace eye contact, a hug, being with each other. And what I like about this especially is that when you talk to people about, would you care to act on the environment? You get a lot of excuses back for people that don't. And among, among the big ones were like, my job, my family, those are the biggest ones. My culture, things like that. And West Point, not a bastion of tree huggers. Right. He's, I mean, and in terms of, I've heard senators talk about America as like big, we will always grow. That's all we're about. I mean, we, we will always be dominant and big. And there's no one who loves his country more than this man loves his country. Hmm. He, he's willing to put his life on the line to defend it. And is at the top, he's not just in the army. He's at West Point, top leadership place. And a lot of people, like so many people say to me, Josh, what you do is great. I love that it takes you a year to fill up a little garbage, but you don't have kids, see? And checkmate. Yeah. Well, he's got, I think, three kids who now are spreading this through the cadets because he brings, like back in West Point, people come over all the time and they're like spreading it to others their age. And so this one guy wipes out every excuse and he enjoyed it. You know, best Christmas ever. Like Christmas, not a... Uh, Aesthetic. It's not Yom Kippur. It's not like fasting. It's like a celebration, and they gave more. Yeah, and and what I like about that is that the the fact that it was their best Christmas ever was the unintended consequence. Yeah. of doing something good for the environment. So that 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 makes it uh, all the much nicer. Yeah, over and over again, people. It's it brings people together, and I keep seeing stuff about like burning fossil fuels. The scientist in me wants to find what's the core. Why is there? There must be something causal. I think that every time the stuff that burns fossil fuels separates us. Hmm. So far, I just see a correlation, but it seems like two, like everyone thinks of flying as bringing you to family, but flying is why the family was apart in the first place. Right. And yeah, I guess if you stayed, if we all stayed together, we wouldn't have to fly back home. Yeah. Well, all right. So, all right, take me through it. We'll see what I come up with. Now I'm curious. (laughs) Well, is the environment something that is a, if it doesn't matter, it's not going to go anywhere. And some people don't care. But is the environment something that you care about? Is it something meaningful to you? 
Yeah, I think I think you'd almost have to be a monster to say no to that. But I, I recognize it's easy to say yes to that. And I knew that was the topic of your podcast. So I did give at least a few minutes thought to that before I, I, I rang in here today. So well, let, me, let me just stop there and see where you want to take it. But uh, yeah, the answer is yes, I think it is. Okay, so I appreciate that but you also spent time. it's not something I think about every day, for sure. Like I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself an environmentalist. That is not a, a part of who I am. That's not something that I find myself constantly advocating for. Okay, yeah. And, and you know, as an aside, I hope that you talked about practice leads to habit and then you just do it. Or you didn't talk about that here. I saw, I was watching your video before. <laughs> and I hope to make it, you don't have to be an environmentalist to act sustainably. That's, I hope, a goal of this that we don't have to all be experts and not, nor would we think we have to be experts. So when you think about the environment, what do you think about? Especially if you think about, if you were to think about acting environmentally, what might motivate you? What do you think about? Yeah. So, well, I can tell you what I've done because it's, it's I've thought about it enough to want to make at least some changes in my life. So when I think about the environment, what I think about is my kids and my grandkids and, and their kids and what kind of world we are leaving them and the problems that come with that. When I was a kid, if you were to go to Los Angeles, like you couldn't breathe. It was like, you know, it was like some cities in China today. I mean, it was, you had to have a mask. I mean, it was that bad. You know, now it's, it's much, much better because we as a society did some things to improve the air quality. Um, so I, I think of things like that, but also uh, renewable energy is something that I, I think about. So what I can tell you is the one major change I did make in my life is to buy an electric car. So a fully electric vehicle, non-gas engine car. And I did that for two reasons. One, the first one was environmental, just to reduce the amount of uh, fossil fuel, you know, that my life footprint was taking up. But the second reason was geopolitical, I would guess you'd say. I've wanted to do that for a long time because uh, you know, I, I'm 52 years old now, so I'm, I'm well beyond the military age to help defend my country. But so I, I often think of what can I do to help our country be safer? And one of those things is keeping us from being so dependent on foreign oil, because I think that probably gets us involved in more conflicts around the world than we maybe would be involved with if we didn't care so much about having a lot of oil. And what can I do to reduce that dependence on that? And that led me to the same place of, well, drive a car, run your house in a way that requires the least amount of fossil fuel. So, uh, so I got an electric vehicle. Um, I changed the uh, electricity in my house, uh, changed the supplier from the local, you know, coal powered electric plant to a grid that is 100% supplied by wind energy. Um, so now the car I drive and the home I live in is completely powered by clean wind powered electricity, 100%. Right. And so my goal is both environmental there, but also, like I said, geopolitical. I want to keep us from being in so many conflicts around the world because my kids and their kids may end up being the ones having to fight those wars someday. And I want to minimize that. I heard a few things. I have to comment at a, at a meta level. There's something that happens a lot. Is I think a lot of people are a little protective at the beginning of like, I don't really know that much. I'm not an expert in this. And you just told me a lot of stuff. It's like, that was not a story of someone who like doesn't care. It felt like the choice of the car, the, the wire, wiring in a house is like, to me, tells me like floors are torn up or something like that, or maybe not so much, but like it was a- Oh, no, it's easier than that. You literally just make a phone call and say, I, I don't want to buy electricity from your company anymore. I'm going to buy it from this other company that's wind powered and make a change. It's like oh, so it wasn't the wiring. Orders. It was the, 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 the supplier. The wiring. Okay. The supplier of electricity is now 
from an, uh, a wind-powered electric generating company. So even so, I mean, it seems like choices that people in LA in your childhood didn't make those choices. And I mean, I guess they didn't have the option of a catalytic converter at, at some point. Even so, so it seemed to me like you in LA, I'm picturing watery eyes. I remember a friend who grew up, his, um, he grew up in Chicago, but his father at one point moved to LA. And he said, his father was like, yeah, this, he, he's in the backyard of his house. And he goes, blah, 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 and points it to the mountain. And he looks up and there's no mountain because it's just fog or smog. And there's also, you described it as geopolitical, but I heard patriotism. And I wasn't sure if that was me reading into it something different, or like something of protecting, protecting your land, your home. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I put those together. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but of like, you could have a land where your eyes are watery and yet, but you prefer one in which we are not going off to war needlessly. Was the LA of your childhood showing up in the decisions that you make today? So, well, so I didn't actually grow up in LA. I was just picking a U.S. city that I knew had a terrible smog problem at one point and doesn't anymore because we, the Environmental Protection Agency and all the, the laws that we've passed in the last 30 years. But, you know, when, if you were to go have, to have visited there in the 70s, you would have seen it, right? It was mm-hmm. awful. But yeah, that, that was on my mind as well was uh, because I, I travel all around the world. I, I've been to many cities in China. And when I was in uh, you know, Guangzhou, I had to wear a mask, a surgical mask, just to walk around on the street, you know, and everybody else did too, because it was that bad. And your eyes, like you said, your eyes would water and burn and your nose would, it would smell awful. And, and, and your, the inside of your nose would, would burn and mm. you, you couldn't wait to get back inside because it was just unhealthy to be outside. And that's, LA might not have ever been quite that bad, but it was, it was a lot closer to that. And I can't imagine every major city in our country being like that someday. But left to our own devices, we could end up that way. And small changes like you and I are talking about now can keep that from happening. And yeah, and so the very, actually the very first thing you said, if I remember right, was you think of your children. And to think of wearing a surgical mask, that, that what you described in Guangzhou, and children at the same time, or your own children, I don't have my nieces and nephews, I would think, but for, so it's going to be even closer for you. That's very, that to me feels pretty powerful. By the way, this question that I ask of what it means to people is, is, has become probably my favorite part of this podcast because I thought everyone would have the same answers as I did. And no one's, I've, I've not heard the same answer twice. I mean, yours sounds like I could imagine everyone having it, but no, everyone's got a different thing. I guess there are a lot of reasons to care about the environment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It turns out everyone, everyone lives in the same environment. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. Okay, so part two is, is I invite you, at your option, to act on what you just talked about. And... I have to put a couple things before you answer is what you don't have to fix all the world's problems by yourself overnight. A lot of people get hamstrung with this. At first I thought they would think if I, if I, if it's not big enough, it's not worth doing, but I think it's more that they're concerned that people are going to say, you know, Florida is going to be underwater and you're worried about this little thing, but it's, this isn't for everyone else. This isn't for the world. This is for you to act on something you care about and a couple constraints. It can't be something you're already doing. A lot of people are like I'm doing this, this, and this great. 
don't stop or whatever, do what you want. But this is for doing something new. Uh, it can't be telling others what to do. And a lot of people are like, oh, I'm a leader. I will get my company to do X. Well, if you want to, but this is to be done with your own hands, if it's a hand thing, you know, and uh, it has to have a measurable effect. So I'm all for education. I'm all for awareness and being conscious, but it has to take the step to something you don't have to measure, but in principle measurable. And most people can't think of something right off the bat, but I've done this a lot, usually by the, by going through a couple rounds of like talking about it, something emerges. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's a fair challenge. So, and I probably circumvented your process by telling you already what I already did. Yeah. So I have not thought through the next step, what would be next for me? I probably need to go back and listen to some of your podcasts about your, uh, your garbage reduction. And uh, I can tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to, uh, what's your thing with the showers? The, is it cold, the cold showers? showers? Well, that's not, that does have an environmental effect, but that's not why I do it. Okay. Oh, why, why do you do it? Oh, um, the short answer is because it improves my life in ways beyond anything I could have imagined. The medium answer would be, yeah, this is guy, Joel Runyon, who's been a guest on the show. He's, he's come over for my famous no packaging vegetable stew with his girlfriend and, and we're friends. Uh, but I met him looking at his page and he's, he does a TEDx talk on cold showers. And I'll, now I'm going to put, I'm going to, I'll send you the link when we're done. And basically I was reading his thing on cold showers and I was, that made me think, oh, maybe I should try a cold shower. I mean, I've taken cold showers, but never purposefully, deliberately. And I'm reading these comments of all these people who've done it. And they're like, they're like I lost weight. Uh, I became more patient. Um, I got my life in order. I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And so as I'm reading these things, at first I thought, I'm definitely going to do this. And I read some more. I was like, I'm going to do it soon. And then at one point, I just didn't even, like maybe turn off the computer and just turn around and took a cold shower. Just there. It was so it was bringing value beyond what I could have imagined. And then I did 30 days straight of cold showers. And then I said, I got to keep going. But like every day is, that I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to keep that up. So I thought every other day, every third day, then I was doing every fourth day for a couple of years. Now I do it every fifth day. And it combines with my exercise routine. So I do my cold shower after my cardio, which is, gets me really sweaty. So it's not just, a, it's not an environmental thing. All right. So I'll have to study up on that one. I'll send you the link. How about you're the expert. Give me some ideas. So you know what I've done so far, uh-huh. but what could be the next step for somebody like me? So I point out uh, uh, the things you talked about. You said, I'll have to look at the things. That's looking for other people's lives. Think more about- um, No, I mean, I have to study what I could do myself. I haven't thought about this enough to know what are the other options because I've already executed the big thing that I knew I wanted to do environmentally, which is car and home electrical you know, wind power. Mm-hmm. What's the next step for somebody like me? What could, what could I do personally? What are my options? Let's see. I'll, in a second, I'll give you some examples of things that other people have done. I mean, when you were in China and you're smelling it, what could they have done? Well, I think most of the smog comes from a couple of sources. One is automobiles, cars. So, and I've already solved that. My car has zero emission. Mm-hmm. And the second one is uh, factory pollution. Basically, you know, industry puts out all kinds of, you know, bad things into the environment. And I, I don't work at a, a company that does that anymore. So I'm not sure I could do more for those, those two things. I mean, it comes to, what comes to mind to me I don't want to influence you on, on what you think about, but a couple of things come to mind for me. One is there's a difference between zero emission at, from the car and zero emission at all. So unless it's coming purely from renewable, and even if it is coming, if you're coming from the same grid, I, I, I also do that. So I, mine goes yeah, well, to- Well, I'm not coming from the same grid, which is, right, I'm coming from a 100% wind energy powered. Grid. Right. Really? Where, where are you? In, in Ohio. 
So in some states, in most places, there's only one electric company that you can get your electricity from. Same for the natural gas, you know, same for all the utilities, right? But in some states, there's competition and you can choose which electric company to buy your electricity from. And Ohio is one of those states where you can choose, there's a dozen different companies I could buy my electricity from. And I chose to buy it from a company that produces all of their electricity from wind turbines, right? So all of the electricity in my house, running my computer and the lights right now, and that I use to charge my electric vehicle is 100% supplied from windmills, wind-powered electricity. None of it's coal, none of it's anything else. It's only wind. So I'd have to so look into that. Many people can do that if you're in a state that offers that choice. You just have to make a few phone calls and do some research and find out who does it and buy your electricity from them. It may be different than what's, what happens in New York. I thought that's what I was doing in New York. But what actually happens is, is my money goes to that company, but actually it's the same grid. So the power that they produce goes into the same grid. And so I'm still increasing demand. And it's not like the electrons can choose where they go. Right. So, However, yeah, yeah that's, that's true. So the actual electrons may not be the ones that were produced by that wind turbine. That's not what really matters because what happens is my money is going to that company and the demand for that company to produce and put into the grid increases by what, however many kilowatts a month I need. They are producing that much more into the system, and which means the other companies, the coal-powered companies, their demand goes down by that amount because I'm no longer paying them to produce that electricity. So yes, it all goes into the same grid, but by me changing who I'm paying absolutely increases the amount of electricity that is produced from wind farms and reduces the amount of electricity produced in coal-powered plants by exactly the amount that I use every month. I think it increases the, the incentive. It doesn't make the coal, power, coal plant decrease its production. The coal plant's still going to do what it does. It, well, they're not the going to produce they don't get paid for it. And it's needed, right? They're not going to get paid for it. Well, they're not going to produce more electricity than is needed, are they? That, how do I put it? You're not decreasing. It's all coming from the same, you're, as far, it's all if coming from the same place. If you and I and everybody else switched to the wind farm, the coal powered plants would be out of business. They would have zero revenue. Yes, that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that they would feel demand go down. They would get less money, but the, if they produce power, it would still go into the grid. And some of that would still come to you. You're not paying for it. And the, the reason I'll point this out is that there's a difference between decreasing total demand and yeah, would it be better if I didn't drive a car at all, or would it be better if I didn't use my air conditioner at all? Is that your point? And which is very no, true. Well, I would not. I would not ask that question uh, because then people. The answer to that question is, well, I can't go without driving at all. So obviously, that's not going to happen. Well, you, you, you can. I, I mean, so I, I work at home now, right? So I, I quit my corporate job. I no longer have a you know thirty mile commute every day, sixty mile round trip commute. I work at home. So I, the only time I ever get in the car and drive is if I have to go to the airport. So I've made that lifestyle change, which I think helps as well. I think a lot of people might think if I, if I make this switch, then I can use all the power I want. It's no big, no, no problem, but it still causes pollution. It's still, um, we're getting too hung up on one thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, I'm sure I don't understand all of the details of it, but just as an economist, my bias would be that if you shift the money the revenue to the companies that are making 
100% wind-powered energy and you take the money away from the coal-powered companies, something good has to happen. The wind-powered energy companies have got to be producing more energy and the coal-powered ones have got to be producing less because they're just going to get less and less money. If all of us made the decision that I made, eventually there would be no coal-powered energy because there would be zero revenue dollars going to those companies. And wind-powered energy companies would pop up all over the country because they would have to to supply the demand that all of these people like you and me are demanding of them. I want electricity from you and you're going to get my money and the other folks are not. So it's got to help. It's got to move the peanut in the right direction, I think. Otherwise, it's all a big scam, right? And, and, and I agree with some of it. There's another effect that, that can happen. So in economics term, there'd be like rebound effects or Jevons paradoxes that if you, you can make something more efficient and increase total use overall, and then you can have a net increase in total waste. There's a difference between efficiency and total waste. Right. And so psychologically, if someone thinks, oh, well, I've switched over to wind, then you're not saying this, but some people will say, I switched to wind and I'm powering my car with it. There, I can drive as much as I want. No problem. That would not, I think that there are different areas in different places where, oh man, this is really getting too far afield. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. That's all right. Um, yeah, take us where you want to go. Are there other things that you've thought of doing that you've kind of been putting off or thought like maybe it's not worth it or maybe it's... Uh... Um, no, but I, I like the idea of reduced refuse. So like, you know, these new movie theaters where it's, uh, it's almost like, it's like having dinner in the theater and, you know... The couches um, and the leaning back. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, I love them, by the way. I mean, so yeah, you're not all crammed in there like in the economy class in an airport anymore or in an airplane. You're, you know, in the, in the seats recline and you, you go and they've got a, a restaurant there and you go get a whole meal and you bring it into the restaurant with you and they've got a place to put it and the tray sits over your, your lap and you lean way back and you watch the movie, right? Uh-huh. So um, I love going there except for one thing. When I leave the theater, I've got this tray full of a ridiculous amount of garbage and it's almost all paper and plastic products, right? The big plastic bowl that my dinner came in, the big you know, cup that the soda pop comes in, the, uh, all the, the napkins, the, the, the silverware that's pl- plastic. The, I mean, it's just ridiculous. And I, I feel so guilty every time I go dump what looks like five or six meals worth of, of uh, you know, dinnerware <laughs> into the trash can. And it's bothered me so much that I've stopped going to the movie there. And I just go to the old fashioned movie and I'll have some popcorn and, I'll, you know, I eat dinner at home. So that just has raised my awareness of packaging and the excessive amounts of it that just go into the trash. And that, that's just the place that I notice it the most is at those type of movie theaters. Mm-hmm. But I would like to reduce my usage of packaging that just ends up in, in the landfill somewhere. But I don't know how to start thinking about that. Okay. So it sounds like I, it's something, when I said, what do you think about when you think about the environment? This could have been something that came up, or this is like, I could have asked, what's, what's a time when the environment comes up? in your mind. And this sounds like one of them, because it sounds like you said you felt guilty and you're like, it's actually changed your behavior against what their goal is. It's, it's actually not even their interests. Yeah. I go there less now. Yeah. And I wonder if there's something you could do in that area, either whether it's related to the movie theater or just packaging in general. Yeah. So I, maybe there are brands that are known for having limited packaging and I just, I need to investigate and see 
and buy those instead of buying the ones I'm buying that you throw so much away. You know, I, I like your idea of no wrapping paper at Christmas, but Christmas is just once a year. So I'd like to do something like that. That's an everyday thing. So I can tell you that a challenge that I gave myself, which was one of the bigger challenges that led to where I am now, is I gave myself a challenge to go for a week with buying no packaged food. And I allowed myself to finish what was in the cupboards and actually spent six months with the idea before I actually acted on it. Because I thought, what am I going to do day one, day two, day three? And planning never worked. All it did was delay. And then I just said, look, I'm not going to die. I I know I'm not going to die if I just eat like carrots and apples and, you know, like fresh fruits and vegetables for a week. And it ended up being, you know, only actually doing it. I solved a lot of problems. Like I I actually boiled beans on the stove for the first time in my life, which then that led to eventually getting a pressure cooker, which does it like really super fast and very delicious. And I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not saying just produce, do. just buying whole foods, right? Yeah. Whole produce and meats and whatever and cooking them without. Yeah. Yeah. So in my case, I don't eat meat, but yeah. And meat is apparently more challenging when to get unpackaged. I've never had to solve that problem, but other people have. So it's not, to, for me, when you said look for different brands, I thought, oh, it's not just brands, but it's like a different style of, of, of shopping. It's spending more time in the produce aisle. And not putting us, bring bags with me to the store. That's something I would do. But it feels like I I feel motivation there on your part. And um, it doesn't have to be for the rest of your life. It can be just a week or a month or whatever is the right amount of time, a day. And Yeah, so I will take that as a fair challenge and see what I can do with uh, packaging. Probably won't go to that movie theater for a while either, but yeah. So uh, can we make it specific? I find that SMART is the acronym that I usually go by. Specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound. So can you say something specific for a certain amount of time? And then I'm going to ask you how it went afterward. Interesting. So like, like go a week without, like you said, eating packaged goods or buying packaged goods or something like that. For me, it was buying because I did have a bunch of stuff in the cupboard and I knew that that would sustain me. So I finished off the stuff that was in there in the process. Yeah. Well, that'd be, that'd be easy, right? I'm just, I'm cheating. I'm just, I'm just, (laughs) you know, I'm, I'm working down on my inventory instead of. Well, I did. I mean, I I remember going to the store and just by habit, I would go to the aisles that I would normally go to. And I'm like, can't get that. Can't, the bags, boxes, cans, bottles, can't get any of those. And I basically had to go to the, to the produce aisle. And, and then eventually that switched over to going to farmer's markets. And now I very rarely go to, after months and months and months, maybe years, I basically don't go to markets anymore, supermarkets. But that's getting ahead of where you are. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to think of what I control. My, my wife tends to do the, the cooking, so I'm not really in charge of that, but maybe I can influence what happens um, or, or the, the shopping. So um, hmm, I'm trying to think of something that would be more directly in my span of control. Do you ever get food on your own? Uh, yeah, but it's usually at a restaurant. So what, what can I do at a restaurant? Do you ever get food on the road? I'm just thinking of like candy bars and potato chips and through the drive-thru of someplace? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Does, do things like that happen? Yeah. Or were you yeah. at uh, airports or... So those are places where it's under your control and you're making the choices and you're doing uh, And there's typically a lot of packaging that comes with that. Probably. I, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So for the next week, no, anytime I want to eat out, it's got to be what? Like, I don't eat out. Is that the difference? No, you got to go in and sit down and eat and let them wash the dishes instead of creating all of this throwaway stuff. I didn't follow. Can you say it again? Yeah. So w- would the choice be to, for the next week to just not eat at a drive-thru? Never, just for a week, don't go to a drive-thru because that's going to create a bunch of 
landfill. If that's if you would normally in a week go to a drive-through at some point and you oh yeah yeah because I so the choice that is was, not no, go, go inside and eat but you know or or eat at home instead yeah, of, I, th- I think that this will lead to results beyond your expectations if it's coming from inside if it's something you really do if if going through a drive-through and afterward in the past you've been like oh what do I do with all this garbage or something like that something like what you described at the, uh, the movie theater experience. Well, that happens more at the movie theater just because the volume of it is, is bigger, but yeah, I have a a, a similar feeling there. So, all right, let me, let me adopt that challenge for a week. And do you normally go at least once during the week? Because if, if you only go like once a month, then that might not be such a challenge, but I just want to make sure. No, it it would be more than once a week. So, okay. And I I predict that the challenge is going to be, what do you do instead? Right. It's not what you don't do. It's what you do. Mm-hmm. And maybe that would be. I'm probably going to have to cook more. Is that where I see this going? I wonder. It could also be just skipping a meal, or yeah, having stuff with you, knowing bring stuff with you, or making sure there's always just peanuts in the car or something like that. Right, I'm going to eat more bananas. I, I can see that happening too. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> okay, so yeah, and I predict that whatever you think, like you can't predict all of what will change. That's my prediction. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, uh, consider me so challenged. So I'll let you know in a week how that went. Now, I, this came out as a result of our conversation. Is this something, or is, is it connecting with something you, or is it, are you doing it for me? Well, I wouldn't do it if we hadn't had this conversation, obviously. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing it because you just prompted and guilted me into it for sure. Um, but that's fine. That's, that, that's the role that you're playing. And I think that's a, a fair push. So let me, ex- let me go experience that and see what it's like. And I might think, yeah, that wasn't as bad as I thought. And I might do it more. I might think, you know what? That just, that was too burdensome. I, I hate the food I cook. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll think of something else. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but. Uh, or you may come back and say it was worth it. Yeah. Like, well, Josh, it sounded like a good idea, but you know, that's drive throughs It really works for my, for my life much better than whatever. Well, I'm open I'll, to that. You know. you know. I'm not looking for you to like, please me. That's not. Yeah. Although I do in my defense have to point out that when you talked about the, when you were at the movie theater, you said it made you feel guilty. Oh yeah. Every time. Now, now you said I made you feel guilty. Well, because I didn't feel, I don't feel that way when I go through the drive-through as much, but, uh, in fact, I, I don't remember having that visceral reaction. I have a very visceral reaction at that movie theater. Okay. I hope I didn't make you feel guilty about the drive-through. That was not my intent. Well, I, I, but I think you should, I think part of playing the role that you're playing, which I, I think is, is a good one, which is trying to encourage other people to be good stewards of the environment. I think it's okay to make people feel a little bit guilty about what they're doing. I'm not even sure how you could do what you're doing without doing that a little bit. So I'm not offended by that at all. I, I, I take it as a fair challenge. So let me, let me take it up and see, see where it goes. All right. Could I say it slightly differently then? Yep. If there was guilt that I, that I revealed guilt that was already there, but not caused it. Yeah. Maybe that's a, yes. That, yeah. You pointing out the consequences of what I'm doing is a very fair thing for anybody with a cause to do. Okay. Just to bring it to your attention. Did you know that when you do X, Y happens? And if that doesn't make you feel guilty, then keep doing X. Mm-hmm. But if now that you know, these are the consequences, you might think differently about what you're, you're doing. I think that's a very fair point to make to, to anyone. And as a bonus commitment, I, you know, I, I can probably say that uh, I may go to that movie theater again, but I probably won't be ordering dinner. 
I'll, uh, I'll eat before I go, go there and, you know, and just bring a bottle of water or something. I'll be here. I'll be curious to hear if that happens. Yeah. Well, ask me here in a, ask me here in a month. I don't go to the movies every week. So uh, wait a month to ask me that one. All right. So when we finish, when we stop hitting, when I stop the recording, then we'll schedule next time. If All right. Works. Very good. And yeah, I feel a bit defensive of like, I don't want to, I don't want to make people feel guilty, but if they do feel guilt, I don't, I'd rather that they, that you've revealed it instead of caused it. I, I get, that's a fair point. There's a, there's a guy that I was speaking to the other day and he did this all on his own. And I, he was an, actually an environmental economist and he was going to change his recycling habits. And he said, oh, you made me feel horrible. And then he goes, no, no, I felt horrible. And I, I, I loved what he said. He, he said, you make me feel empowered. Now I can do something about it. But when I was pushing down that feeling of, of guilt, he said, then I couldn't do anything about it. That may feel great. Yeah, good. Well, I, I, I think I'll end up in the same place. So, All right. So um, we'll schedule the next time right after we finish recording. I'd like to wrap up with asking, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? And uh, anything you want to say directly to listeners? Could be about storytelling, could be environment, could be... Uh, we, we probably covered everything I know about uh, the environment and, and a few things that I, I obviously didn't know. So I'm, I'm going to be doing some more research myself. I would just say, if, you, if you're interested in learning more about storytelling as a leadership marketing sales communication vehicle, uh, then, then come, come visit my website, the one that you've been reading from there, which is leadwithastory.com and check out some of my books and training courses. I, I think you'd be pleased with what you can learn about how to be a more effective leader through, through storytelling. And that the, the book you were talking about is uh, The 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell. It's a really short book. I think you can read it in one hour. It was designed to be read in one hour. So not the normal size books that, that I normally write. Uh, this is this is intended to be the kind you can pick up and on an airplane and read it and have it done before you land. So, yeah, check check those out. And it feels like you could read it an hour and also refer to it for ten more years. Uh, absolutely, yeah. In fact, that's one of the criteria I used to pick those ten stories was that they would be the kind of stories that wouldn't change very often. Like your founding story, it should never change, right? <laughs> the company is never going to be re founded. It happened once, right? You know, your vision story should only change every five or six or eight or 10 years, right? You shouldn't have a new vision every, every six months. You know, your strategy story shouldn't change every six months. So I picked the stories I picked because they're the kind of stories that you can spend some time investing in to get them right because you're going to use them for years. Paul Smith, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. When we talked about the environment, Paul showed the pattern that many do at first. They play down their knowledge and experience or even their passion. But when they talk about it more, caring and passion emerge, as when he talked about China and L.A. and when it directly connected to his kids, not just his kids in general. And then the more that he talked about it, the more it emerged. By getting into details about the power supply, I think that discouraged him because I was pushing back. And as a leader, that's not what I want to get. My supporting him, at least that's what I tried to do, on the other issues led him to share more, which allowed him to act on more empowered him more. I heard him already expanding from acting on what he first talked about to expanding to other areas too. And of course, acting is different than talking. So we'll have to hear the next time how it ends up. So I look forward to that. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up, 
I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference. And living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.